Welcome to Friendship with God. Today, Tom Cantor will teach us from Genesis about the temptation of the king of Sodom to Abraham and his exhaustion, and the helping hand of God through Melchizedek. This message is available for free download at friendshipwithgod.org or on iTunes. Now, we've got a special offer for you as we begin the new year. Tom Cantor has written a book called Frequently Asked Questions by Jewish People. It's got uh, 34 of the most popular questions that Jewish people ask about the Jewish Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've got a wonderful offer in having this book, but it's also combined with another book that Tom Cantor's written called Prophecy and Fulfillments of the Lord Jesus Christ. In addition to that, it's also got Tom Cantor's life story, his testimony on how a Jew came to know and put his trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is a special offer never offered before, but it's got three books together, all in one. So you have the Frequently Asked Questions by Jewish People, Prophecy and Fulfillments of the Lord Jesus Christ, and How a Jew Came to Know and Put His Trust in the Jewish Messiah, The Life Story of Tom Cantor, all in one book. We have limited supplies of these. We've only printed a select amount. So you've got to call us today, one 800 247 3051. 1-800-247-3051. You can call us now or after the program. 1-800-247-3051. Get this combination book of frequently asked questions by Jewish people, prophecy and fulfillments of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the testimony of Tom Cantor, all in one book. Call us at 1-800-247-3051. Now here's Tom Cantor with today's teaching program from Genesis. Okay, well, if you'd like to turn to uh, Genesis chapter 14. We'll get ready to start. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for being here with us this morning. You are, Lord, the most valued guest. And we pray that as we open and study your word, that you would be our teacher. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis 14. Okay, now follow along, please, as I begin reading here in verse 16. And he, this is Abraham, brought back all the goods and also brought again his brother Lot and his goods and the women also and the people. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Kedoloamir and of the kings that were with him at the valley of Sheva, which is in the king's dale, which is the king's dale. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and and earth, and blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand, and he gave him tithes of all. And the king of Sodom said unto Abraham, Abraham, Give me the persons and take the goods to thyself. And Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have lift up mine hand unto the Lord, the Most High God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet, and that I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou should say, I have made Abram rich. Save only that which the young men have eaten, and the portion of the men which went with me, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre, let them take their portion. All right. Now, in our last study, you remember that as we looked over the layout of these these verses here, verse 16 and 17 and 18, we saw something very important that really ministers to our hearts. When we came to verse 16, we saw Abraham as the one that's described here, and he brought back all the goods and also brought again his brother Lot and his goods as women also, the women also and the people. What was emphasized to us in verse 16 
is what Abraham had just accomplished, what Abraham had just done. It said that he brought back all the goods and also brought again Lot and his goods and the women and the people. When you read that verse, it's really looking like an inventory list that as though someone there is there with a pencil and a paper, and he's recording down all that Abraham had in his triumphal procession as he's coming back. And so it's those words, brought, and those four words, and, that go on and on, that emphasize what Abraham has really just done, the, re, the astounding thing that Abraham has accomplished. So notice how in that verse we can just picture a person, and he's writing down, he's writing down, that Abraham has just brought back all the goods. We can picture that person, and maybe that person, we can see him with a list of everything that Cater Lorimer's army had taken away, all the things that were missing. And so Abraham's coming back, and we can see that person, and he's, he's checking off each unit. Check, check, check off the list, with the missing item list. And his conclusion is that Abraham has not just brought back part of the goods, but he looks over this list and he says, look at that. Every single item that was taken by Cato's armies, Abraham has recovered it all. He's brought it all. So with that first and in the verse, we see that the person, that person with his list, and he's noting all these things, he's, he's straining his eyes and he's saying, look, there's Lot, there he is, there's Lot. There's the person that caused Abraham to go after Kedol Armor in the first place. Lot, he's brought him back. He's alive. And Abraham was successful, and he brought Lot back. And we would not miss how Lot is referred to in that verse. Very importantly, he's referred to Abraham's brother. Lot is not called Abraham's nephew, even though he was. He was Abraham's brother's son. He was Haran's son. He was his nephew. But he's not called nephew. He's not called, he's not called neched, nephew. He's not said that in Hebrew. But he's called brother. Ach, he's called brother. And so Abraham has just risked everything. He's just risked his life and the lives of his men. He's risked it all to rescue Lot, to recover Lot. And Lot, remember now who Lot is. Lot is the one who separated himself from Abraham. Lot is the one who chose to associate himself with those wicked Sodomites. But does Abraham take the position of saying, you know, Lot serves you right. You did me dirty. You took all the best land for yourself and you left nothing for me. And then after all I taught you about God and how God was holy, you turned your back on God and you joined up with those wicked sodomites. No way. That's not Abraham. Not our Abraham. That's not the one bit of the kind of spirit that had that Abraham had. Abraham, we see here, he gladly risked it all for Lot because Abraham loved Lot And Abraham honored Lot with this title of brother. And Abraham prayed for Lot. You know, it reminds me of a business trip that Cheryl and I were on. We'd gone to France. We were in Paris. It was May 20th. We happened to be there on Memorial Day, May 27th, 2002. 
And um, we couldn't go to Normandy because it was restricted, so we watched on television when President, the uh, last Bush, George W. Bush, he stood there in the American cemetery on the bank over uh, Normandy Beach, and he gave a speech. And it was very moving as we were watching it there because he said, he talked about the time when the firing had finally ended, is the way he put it. He said the, the firing had finally ended, and he said it was the time on the beach there, Normandy and D-Day Beach, where the wounded and the dead were being removed from the beaches. He was saying that. And then he started to talk about the sand. And he said the sand was littered. And he said, mile upon mile, the sand was littered. And he started to go through a description of a mixture of the equipment of war and the belongings of, as he called them, the boys who had given everything that they had. And he was saying, and there were life belts, and there were canteens, and there were socks on the beach, and K-rations, and helmets, and diaries, and snapshots. And then he stopped and he said, and there were Bibles. Many Bibles mixed, he said, with the wreckage of war. And our boys, he said, had carried in their pockets that book that brought into the world this message. And then he quoted from John 15. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man laid down his life for his friends. And then he said, America honors all the liberators who fought here in the noblest of causes. And then he turned to the president of France, he turned to President Chirac, and he said, and America would do it again for our friends. That was something. He said that. He said, America would do it again for our friends. In other words, Bush standing there among 9,400 American graves. So what is it? He's standing there in the midst of the cemetery, 9,400 American graves. And so, it's, and so it's really, he's standing in the middle of the cost of it all. In other words, with the cost so evident, he says, and America would do it again for our friends. So with the cost so evident, he says, America would do it again. And Bush was saying that, with the cost in front of me, America would do it again. In verse 16, when Abraham is returning back and he's in total exhaustion and with the cost of it all so evident in front of him, as this verse calls out when it says Lot is his brother, Abraham is saying, with the cost of it all in front of me, I would do it again. That's what he's saying. And now by Abraham calling him his brother, he's saying, Knowing what I know now, I would do it again. That's a tremendous statement that he's making there. And it's tremendous for him to be able to call Lot his brother. And in essence, be saying, knowing what I know now, Lot, I would rescue you again. What a tremendous statement it is to say, knowing what I know now, I'd I'd do it again. Have you ever told, have you ever told the Lord Jesus Christ those words? Have you ever said to him, knowing what I know now, I would receive you again? I would take you again as my Savior? Have you ever told your spouse those words? I did. I said, Cheryl, after 43... (laughs) I got the smelling salts ready. I said, Cheryl, after 43 years of marriage, knowing what I know now, I'd marry you again. You can't say something nicer than that, and I won't tell you what she said. But anyway, you can't say something nicer. Maybe you can't say something more disturbing. I don't know. But 
This is what verse 16 is saying when it calls out Lot as Abraham's brother. It's Abraham saying to Lot, knowing what I know and what the cost all in front of me, so evident in front of me, I would do it again. I would rescue you again. And then we see this person. He's got the list there, our inventory man, and he's got the second and that he's written down. And here he records that Abraham has brought again all of Lot's goods. Now we see him note that down. And then we see the third and in this verse. And Abraham has brought back the women also. He's brought back the wives and the sisters and the mothers and the daughters, all encompassed in the term the women. And then we see him write down that fourth and, which refers to Abraham bringing back the rest, the rest of the people. So at that list in verse 16, they're writing down that all goes, and it's and we've seen that, and we say, Abraham did a lot. He did a lot. And when the, that list, you, you read it again, and not only the person says that, boy, Abraham did a lot. Look at this list. And we say, Abraham did a lot. Abraham looks it over and says, I did a lot. So what we see here is one tired and exhausted and vulnerable Abraham. Abraham knows that he is in a weakened, tired, exhausted, and vulnerable state. And everybody knows that Abraham is in a weakened, tired, exhausted, and vulnerable state. And Satan knows that Abraham is in a weakened, tired, exhausted, and vulnerable state. And the king of Sodom knows that Abraham is in a weakened, tired, exhausted, and vulnerable state. And knowing this, in verse 17, the king of Sodom moves in on Abraham. As we read there in verse 17, the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Kedaloyamir. And God knows that Abraham is in a weak and tired, exhausted, and vulnerable state. And this shows us the importance of the sequence of these verses verses 16, 17, and 18. Why? Because in verse 16, we see Abraham in a weak and tired and exhausted and vulnerable state. And what we see in verse 17 is a wicked king of Sodom, the king of the Sodomites, like a spider coming in to make an alliance through possessions, through goods, through wealth. It's an alliance through wealth he's going to propose. And the king of Sodom represents to Abraham a false friend, what a false friend is. Then we see in verse 18, God stepping in with a bold interruption of the plans of the king of the Sodomites. And we see God with his mighty hand just sort of pushing back the king of Sodom as if to say, this temptation that you have in mind will not go forward until I first strengthen my friend Abraham. That's what's happening. Tom, Abraham was exhausted and going through some challenges dealing with the king of Sodom, as you pointed out today. Now, many are exhausted today, too, and our rest and reward will be in heaven. But what is heaven like according to the scriptures? Well, you know, when we answer a question like that, We have to really look at the answer in two parts. And the first part is to answer what in its core, what in a nutshell is heaven like? And the second question is, what are some of the particulars about heaven? 
the best verse I can think of that really addresses the core of heaven, in other words, in a nutshell, in other words, if, if I want to know, it, just in very few words, what is heaven in the core of the answer, I go to John 14, 1 through 3. Because, of course, this verse, this part starts off with the statement, let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. So when we get really to the question of what happens to me after I die, which is really where we're going when we ask questions about heaven and hell, he, the Lord Jesus Christ, understands that this is a troubling question for us. In other words, when we think of ourselves dying and we think of ourselves going into a coffin and the ground and all the other things, that, of course, it's disturbing and it's troubling. So right away, he speaks to our heart and he says to us, let not your heart be troubled. And then he says, you believe in God, believe also in me. In other words, what he's saying here is that consider who I am. Consider my authority. He says, you believe in God, believe also in me. In other words, you believe in God, believe that I am also God. In other words, because we know from the scriptures, it teaches so clearly that when it uses the word Elohim, being a plural word, it's referring to the three persons of the Godhead or the triunity of the three persons or the trinity of the three persons. So what he's really saying here. And let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. He's saying again, going back to the most important prayer among the in in uh, um, in Moses, which is the Shema in Deuteronomy six four, where it says, "Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one." And so he's saying, this is essence, what he's saying in John 14, 1, you believe in God, believe also in me. In other words, it's saying, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. In other words, uh, our master is our God's. Our master is one in a togetherness, a composite unity. So in other words, believe that I am God. So in other words, he's saying, I, as God, am telling you, don't let your heart be troubled. Now, why? He goes on to tell us why. Because now he, as God, is saying, in my Father's house, in other words, in God the Father's house, are many mansions and then, and you can almost hear the Jewish expressionism coming up as he says, "If it were not so, I would have told you." <laughs> he says, "You know, you think I, you think I would have told you differently if it wasn't there." So he says, "In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you." And then he says, "I go to prepare a place for you." Now, he's saying that he's going to heaven. He's going to the Father's house to make a place for each one of us. He as the master provider, as the master creator, as the master builder is going to provide, create, and build a place for us, just like he provided, created, and built our bodies to live in. You can bet your bottom dollar that he is going to build, create, provide a individual place for each one of us to live in, just as he's created our individual bodies for us to live in. And then he says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you 
unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. So what he's saying here is that he's saying, look, I don't start things and not finish them. And to have a house prepared without the inhabitant is no good. So as soon as I'm finished preparing the place for you and I go, I'm going to come again and bring you and receive you. Now, here, the really important core part to see about heaven is these two words, to receive you unto myself. In other words, he's not saying, and I'll come again, and I'll bring you into heaven, or I'll escort you to heaven, or I'll, you know, like in Disneyland, I'll open the doors to the magic kingdom. You know, he's not saying that. He's saying, I will receive you. You will come to me, unto myself. And that's the key to what the core of heaven is, unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. So in other words, where is heaven is where the Lord Jesus Christ is. And when are we in heaven? When we are with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why if a person who loves the Lord Jesus Christ, desires with all of his heart to be with the Lord Jesus Christ, lives every day of his life yearning with an active yearning to be with the Lord Jesus Christ, then heaven is the greatest relief and joy and satisfaction that could possibly come to his soul because he has this great love for and to be with the Lord Jesus Christ. On the other hand, if a person really would prefer not to think about the Lord Jesus Christ, if a person really does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, if a person really loves someone else or something else more than the Lord Jesus Christ, if a person, if a person is not really have his heart's yearning and desire, let me put it this way, if a person doesn't have his greatest heart yearning and desire to be with the Lord Jesus Christ, then heaven for that person would be hell. Why? Because because heaven is going to the Lord Jesus Christ, receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. So the pictures that we see of heaven in the Bible are all about the Lord Jesus Christ. They're all about, uh, uh, for example, and these are now, we've now getting to the particulars in Revelation 4, 1 through 6. After this I looked, and behold, the door was opened in heaven. The first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show you things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven. So the center of heaven, I'm stopping now and I'm commenting, that the center of heaven is this throne. It's right in the middle. It's right front and center. It is the center of focus and attention. And one sat on the throne. And and now I'm reading again. And one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting clothed in white raiment. And they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceed lightnings and 
thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning it before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God, and before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal in the midst of the throne, and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. Now, I've read that in such a way to emphasize the repetition of this word, the throne, the throne, the throne. Why is it so important? Because it's the Lord Jesus Christ who's sitting on the throne. So everything, whether it's the sea of glass or whether it's the the four and twenty elders or the seven spirits of God or the seven lamps of the fire, they're all around the throne. And so if anybody would go up there to heaven and say, you know, I'm really interested in those seven lamps of fire. I think I'm just going to turn my back on the throne. and look. No, he'd be totally out of sync, out of kilter with what's going on there, because heaven is where the Lord Jesus Christ is. And that's what heaven is. And to be in heaven is to be with the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for joining Tom Cantor and the Friendship with God radio program today. Now, as we mentioned at the beginning of our program, Tom Cantor has a book that he's written. We've combined three together in one. It's got Tom Cantor's Frequently Asked Questions by Jewish People, Prophecy and Fulfillments of the Lord Jesus Christ, and How a Jew Came to Know and Put His Trust in the Jewish Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's Tom Cantor's personal testimony. They're all together in one book. Now, we have a limited printing of these combination books, and it's a great offer to start off the new year. It's even a good Bible study to start off the new year with, with great devotional topics about how you can identify the Jewish Messiah. Do the Hebrew Jewish scriptures support the virgin birth? What's the difference between a Gentile and a Christian? And many, many other questions and study topics. Great devotional study book. We've got a limited supply. Call us today, 1-800-247-3051. one 800 You can find out more information about us at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org, or 1-800-247-3051.